of the pastors here, and I want to offer you this prayer. The Lord be with you. We are wrapping up our series on abundant life and abundant living and what that looks like, and so I want to look at two passages actually this morning. One is a review from a passage we looked at a few weeks ago, and then another one, uh, uh, Luke, both from uh, Luke, who's writing these, but the first one's Acts chapter 2. So if you want to open up your Bible to the book of Acts, and then as you're getting there, you might go past Luke and stick your thumb in Luke chapter 12. So we're going to look at Acts 2 and Luke 12. Acts 2, you'll recall, comes at the end of the chapter, which is about Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit, and, the, and Peter stands up and gives the first Christian sermon, and the crowd is moved by the Spirit, and there's a, a great um, birth of the church, and then we have this description of what the church looked like from Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, and the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need, and every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." And then just flip back a few chapters to Luke chapter 12, Luke 12, starting with verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said to himself, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. There I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. I'd like you to start this morning by taking out your cell phones and unlocking them and opening them up. And if you have the Cedar Hills Church app, open that up. If you do not, immediately go to the app store and download the Cedar Hills app so that you have it. Okay, everybody got that? I'll give you extra time, assuming you're all as slow as I am in doing some of this stuff, but... If you have the Cedar Hills app open now, you will see that there's a number of options there. One of them is called Quick Question. Click on the Quick Question. And when you'll do that, you'll see this question. Poverty is A, a lack of opportunities, B, a lack of resources, C, 
a lack of relationships. I want you to turn to your neighbor and answer that question. What do you think poverty is? A lack of opportunities, resources, or relationships. Go ahead, and if someone's by themselves, try to include them in on your little conversation. What is poverty? You are very deep in thought this morning and very slow in discussion. That's maybe a tough question. Some of you got to think about this question earlier this week because we send out the quick question on Thursday or Friday. If you have downloaded the app, you'll get it in your notifications. So according to the survey, that the, those who answered this question, it looks like we think by a ratio of about three to one that poverty is essentially a lack of resources. There's this many who said lack of resources. There's only a handful who thought it was a lack of relationship and even fewer who thought it was a lack of opportunities. So I want to talk about that with you for a few minutes. What is poverty? Is it a lack of something? Of course, we've been talking about this abundance and this idea for a few weeks, and one of the questions that we have yet to answer is, Who's supposed to experience the abundant life? And how would you answer that question? Who's supposed to experience the abundant life? Everyone, okay? What is the number one barrier to the abundant life? Well, that's the question we ask here. Is it relationships? Is it resources? Is it opportunity? Is there some other barrier to abundant living? That's what I want to try to do, and we're going to do that by looking at these two stories that I just read. One story about scarcity and one story about abundance. And the stories were what I'm going to call the spirit community, which is described in Acts 2, and the barn guy, described in Luke 12. First, I'm going to remind you of our little definitions we've been using. Scarcity, we've said, is not enough. Scarcity is a lack, a shortage, a shortfall. Can you think of another word for scarcity? Poverty. Yeah, I'm thinking scarcity and poverty are kind of in the same. Good job, you get a bonus. We usually think of poverty as not enough, that we're lacking something. Now, we're not sure exactly what it is that we're lacking. Lack of housing, lack of food, lack of health care, lack of wealth. Those would all be kind of resource questions. And the most common way that we in this country answer the question about poverty is we say it's a lack of some material thing. Of the two stories that we just read, the spirit community in Acts 2 and the barn guy in Luke 12, which is a story about scarcity? Be careful, this might be a trick question. (laughs) Acts 2 describes a community in need. Need sounds like scarcity. Need sounds like not enough. Need sounds like poverty. In Luke 12, we hear about a guy who has a lot. That sounds like abundance, doesn't it? But it's not enough, even though he has an abundance. Okay, I'm going to give you the definition we have for abundance, which we've been saying it's more than enough. It's this idea of God blessing us with more and more and more, more than we can ever handle. Now, I got to admit to you that ever since we've started this 
series thinking about the difference between scarcity and abundance, I've been trying to figure out what that means for me because I see this kind of dilemma that we see in these two stories kind of constantly come up. Sometimes people who seem to have a lot of stuff don't seem to have enough. They seem to have a scarcity. And sometimes people who hardly have anything at all seem to have more than enough. So can I see examples, even within our own community, of where there's this abundance that Jesus talks about in John 10.10? That's where we started the first week, remember? John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. What does that abundance look like? How does that play it out in real life? And we've said from the beginning, if this doesn't have some real life practical application, then an abundant life is meaningful. It has to have play it out in our day-to-day living. So what does that look like? So over the last few weeks, my radar has been out there looking for stories about abundance or situations where like, this looks like abundance. And I was actually inspired last week by Brett who shared about stories of radical hospitality, uh, a biblical hospitality that reaches out to people who are strangers and foreigners and outcasts. And when I'm hearing him describe these kinds of hospitality, I'm thinking, that sounds like abundance in the middle of scarcity. And then I was moved because I heard some people tell some stories about they're opening up their homes through Safe Families for Children, and they're like welcoming in other people's children. Their families are in a crisis, and so their children need a safe place to go, and so they open their doors to let these people in. That sounds like abundance. And then I was blown away because I heard about a couple who drained their savings account to pay the medical bills of someone who was in need. So there's scarcity there, but in the midst of this scarcity, it's this picture of abundance and That inspired me. And then I was touched because I also heard about a family who purchased a vehicle for another family who needed a vehicle. And then I heard about people who were giving rides to immigrants who needed to get some paperwork taken care of. And I heard about people who were going to the hospital to comfort someone who was grieving. And I heard about someone making meals and bringing it to someone who was hungry. And this geeked me out because I was thinking in the middle of our community, in the middle of our own community, I see these wonderful pictures of abundance. And it sounds a lot more like the spirit community in Acts 2 and less like the barn guy who's hoarding all of his stuff in bigger barns. I'm thinking, I'm seeing pictures of abundant living right here. But the most inspiring or one of the most inspiring stories I heard actually happened outside of our community, but it was so powerful I wanted you to hear about it because it seemed to encompass so much of what we've talked about with abundant living. And the name of this video is called Sarah's Story, and I want you to watch this and think about all the ways this represents abundant living. So watch this. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I'm 22 years old. Four and a half years ago, I moved to New York to go to NYU and study theater. When I was a sophomore, I was reading Isaiah 58 on my way to church and was challenged on the way I was living my life. I went to church and worshipped in all the right ways, but I wasn't spending myself on feeding the hungry or meeting the needs of the oppressed. So I started spending my free time eating with homeless people around NYU, while every night returning to my Fifth Avenue downtown apartment. Something began to feel out of place. Around that time, I started reading the Gospel of Matthew with my friend Jillian. We asked ourselves, what if we took the words of Jesus seriously and didn't water them down? We decided that the answer to that for us was to move just a few miles away to the South Bronx, the poorest neighborhood in the U.S. The South Bronx has the highest rate of poverty in the United States. More than half the kids that live there live below the poverty line. Two out of every three adults are unemployed. 
60% of people don't have a high school diploma, and only 4% of people in my neighborhood have graduated from college. Needless to say, drugs, crime, gangs, and prostitution are rampant. Violence is a normal part of survival. Our biggest obstacle at the beginning was that everyone from the cops to our Christian community thought we were crazy. The cops told us our neighborhood was a war zone and we had to get out. I remember sitting on my stoop one night and watching the families walk by. I thought to myself, who's fearing for the safety of these kids? As long as they're forced to walk home on these streets, I will too. As we began to focus on being present in the neighborhood, we realized that the people we were supposed to be afraid of greeted us by name and gave us huge hugs every time we walked by. Before long, kids were hanging out at our house until midnight and asking for food. We realized that no one was taking care of them. Most of them lived with one guardian who was either strung out on drugs or worked three jobs. So we started giving them after-school snacks, helping them with their homework, feeding them dinner, and putting them to bed in their homes every night. All of this was happening while I had a full-time job that I not only loved, but found myself with a huge amount of power, influence, and wealth within the company. However, I was working 80 hours a week and had less and less time to read Bible stories to the kids or to be there for my neighbor when she was diagnosed with AIDS. I had to make a choice. So after wrestling for months, I quit my job and decided to raise support so that I could give all of my time, energy, and creativity to being a part of God's renewal in my neighborhood. I don't know where the money is going to come from, but I have faith because I know that I am in the center of God's kingdom becoming a reality on earth. The poorest neighborhood in America is in the most powerful city in the world. As a part of Trinity Grace Church, I'm committed to seeing God's kingdom come in New York, which to me means people from Chelsea and the Upper East and West Sides coming alongside our brothers and sisters in the South Bronx, living together, worshiping together, and breaking bread together. As the people of God, we're called to steward our privilege on behalf of the poor in our city. What an honor that God uses our small acts of obedience to bring his kingdom in forgotten neighborhoods. This is just the beginning of God's work in the South Bronx of New York City. So is this a story about scarcity or abundance? I got to admit that when I was 20 and in college, abundance wasn't a word I would use to describe my life. Scarcity would be the word. I was just happy if my dad ever like gave me 20 bucks to put gas in my car. Most college students don't live with a picture of abundance. And when I did start to develop an idea of like abundant living, I'm ashamed to admit to you that my view was probably not outside my own little orbit. I can imagine my life becoming more abundant I definitely could not imagine what it would look like if my neighborhood started to live with greater abundance. So that's why a video like this kind of blows me away because I think here's a 20-something college student who is figuring out what abundant living means, not just for her, but for her entire neighborhood. And this happens because her vision was transformed, and that happened while she was reading Scripture. She was reading passages like this one from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, 
to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the cities that have been devastated for generations. I got to tell you, that last verse sounds like abundant life, doesn't it? Like abundance? to rebuild the ancient ruins, to restore the places long devastated. And I can imagine and I can see places in our own community and places in our world that have been long devastated and need to be rebuilt and restored. They need abundant life. And the Bible has a word for describing what it looks like when this kind of abundance happens, when this kind of restoration happens. And that word is shalom. We often translate shalom as peace, which is a weak translation. Uh, Peace, in this case, is everything that is wrong is set right. Everyone enjoys prosperity and justice and fairness. This is what abundant living is. Abundant living is peace. It's shalom. Healing for the broken, freedom for the captive, comfort for the grieving, hope for the hopeless, good news for the poor. That's how the Bible describes abundant living. Who gets to experience that? Who gets to live life abundantly? Well, we think everyone should. And Luke actually tells a bunch of stories about wealth and poverty, about abundance and scarcity, and these stories are designed to help us capture this vision of how everyone can live abundant living. The first one we looked at was Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes upon this community and everyone who was in need is taken care of. They experience shalom. Luke 12 is an example of what happens if you don't live with shalom. Instead, you become the barn guy and you hoard all your things. You keep them all for yourself. And the community doesn't experience shalom. Luke goes on with other stories about this. One is in Luke chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was very wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore tree to see him. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, you come down. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. But all the people who saw this began to mutter, Jesus is gone to be with this great sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to him, Lord, here and now I give half of all my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I'll give them back four times the amount. And Jesus looked at Zacchaeus and said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Is this a story about abundance or scarcity? It's about abundance in the midst of this scarce world and about a man who responds to meeting Jesus with generosity. So it seems to me that abundant living and generosity are just part of following Jesus. It's part of what it means to be saved. You two can't be separated. When Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly, he's talking about people who live abundant lives and are generous. Did you know that the Bible has about 200 verses that talk about faith and about 2,000 verses that talk about money? 
Here's another story in Luke about what this abundant living might look like. Luke 21. Jesus looked up and he saw that the rich were putting their offering into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people have given their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty has given all that she has. The rich gave out of their surplus. They probably didn't even notice the difference. The struggling widow gave sacrificially. And Jesus, when he analyzes this from the perspective of abundant living, says the rich were poor and the widow was wealthy. She's living abundantly. She's living with shalom. The wealthy are not. Another story in Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he unrolled it, and he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled. The biggest barrier to shalom is not lack of resources or lack of opportunities. It's not lack of health care or lack of food or housing or job. It's a lack of relationship. I've been studying poverty by looking at materials from an organization called When Helping Hurts. And this is a group that's on the front lines of trying to like rescue people who are trapped in generational poverty, year, generation after generation of being in poverty. And they've come to this conclusion. They say, poverty is the result of relationships that do not work. Poverty is the result of relationships that are not just, that are not life-giving, that are not harmonious. Poverty is rooted in broken relationships with God, with self, with others, and with the rest of creation. Poverty is a lack of shalom a lack of peace. The house on Beekman, started by Sarah in 2008, has been seeking the abundant life for what is essentially six square blocks in the South Bronx. And they've understood something about what is necessary to bring abundant life. And yeah, they address things like she mentioned, housing and health care and food and jobs. But there's something more important that they address, and I want you to see. So this ministry has been going on since 2008, and I've got a little update of the things that have been going on there. I'd like you to watch this video, and I want you to think about it while you're watching. How are relationships key to bringing shalom to Beekman Street? We followed God to the Bronx in 2008 not knowing why he brought us here or what he had in store for us. 
We moved into a house on Beekman Avenue, and our neighbors warmly welcomed us. We made fast friends, eating dinner together, swapping family recipes, and spending hours on the stoop, sharing about our very different life experiences. It's during that time that we learned just how stacked the deck was against our neighbors. The obstacles they faced weren't just from a lack of resources, but from an entire system. In our neighborhood, this system includes failing public schools, inadequate health care, an unjust criminal justice system, and dismal housing. These conditions create a cycle that makes it extremely difficult for anyone here to pursue the passions that have been put inside of us, to become the people that God created us to be. Five years ago, in 2012, I showed up at an abandoned church and met Sarah, Sloan, and three other pregnant women. We didn't have everything in common, and none of us had all the answers, but we were all determined to do whatever we needed to do to see the next generation reach their full potential. From that founding day five years ago, we started developing a seamless series of programs to surround our community with. And we've been growing with our neighbors for over five years. Babies who weren't even born yet are now in kindergarten and going to our after-school programs. And students who came to us as first graders will soon be moving to middle school. We occupy three commercial spaces, serve 200 families annually, and we've invested over $3 million in our neighbors. We've seen incredible transformations in both children's and families' lives. But we know that relief for a handful of our neighbors is only the beginning of the system-wide overhaul that's needed. We believe that God is not just interested in changing a few lives, but in a renewal of our whole neighborhood. Right now, we're serving about 6% of families in the neighborhood. But can we give everyone in the neighborhood, not just 6%, not even 12%, but anyone who wants it, the opportunity to be who they were made to be? We think we can. There are tipping points in communities. What happens when enough small things change that it prompts a larger shift in the place's culture? We know from research that if only 12 to 15% of our community can be transformed, then natural systemic change becomes exponentially easier. In our first five years, we've done so much with your help, but we're not there yet. We're going to keep working by going deeper, wider, and longer. In the next five years, we want to make what we do deeper, continue to figure out ways to do what we do better, more effectively and more impactful by investing in and developing the best staff and volunteers, partnering further with local leaders, and giving our students more opportunities to grow and learn. Second, we want to make what we do wider, working towards tripling the capacity in our current programs by growing our staff, volunteers, and space in order to serve more children and reach that tipping point. Last, we need to make what House on Beekman does longer. Me and my friends are going into middle school next year, and we really need House on Beekman support to follow us through middle school, high school, and beyond. 
We believe that we are well on our way to seeing our community flourish in a way that most people have long counted as impossible. We see these kids entering one of the most important times in their lives when they'll be making decisions that have a huge impact on who they become. We want to be there for them through that because we know that there is rich potential in the next generation of the South Browns. Whether you've been with us for these last five years or you're just now joining us, thank you. We invite you to continue the journey for the next five years as we join God in the renewal of the South Bronx. I volunteer at Hoover School, which is an elementary school right back here in our neighborhood. And I work with one kid. And uh, as I walk around the halls there, I recognize something. There are a lot of kids at Hoover School who live every day with scarcity. And as we've worked through this whole series and listened to Jesus' words, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. I can't help but think that's for us, that he wants us to have abundant life. But I can't help but think that we can't have abundant life unless all those kids at Hoover School have abundant life. And what does it look like for our neighborhood to live abundantly? So as we continue to go forward, I'd like you to ask the question, where are you on your journey toward abundant life? And where are you on your journey toward bringing abundant life to our entire neighborhood? I think that's what Jesus wants because Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Lord God, we come before you this morning and we give you our praise and thanks because you are a good God. You're a God of everlasting love and kindness and grace and mercy. You're a God who heals the brokenhearted. You're the God who frees the oppressed. You're the God who guides the hurting and fixes broken things. We celebrate and praise you, God, because today we recognize that many of us could celebrate the brokenness that you have repaired in our life and are repairing in our lives. But God, we also come challenged because we look at the needs of our community and see so many more places where uh, there is a need for peace and wholeness. And so, God, we pray that you would continue the good work that you've started in us and in our whole neighborhood, in our whole community. And God, if there's anyone here today who needs that special touch of healing and wholeness, would you touch them, God, those who need to experience the shalom that comes from healing, physical healing? Grant that, Lord. Be with someone here today who's in need of uh, restored relationships. Their marriages are broken. Their relationship with their kids are damaged. They, They need shalom in their relationships, God. Bring peace. God, be with those today who are wrestling economically because they are lacking job, lacking dollars, lacking food, lacking basic necessities of life. God, bring them shalom in their life. God, for those in our community who are struggling because of a broken system, because of bad education, because of bad justice system, because of poor housing, whatever that need might be, God, would you break into that and bring your shalom 
And God, I recognize even while I'm praying this that if you want to do that, then you're likely going to do it by using us. So God, call us and lead us in the ways that you want us to respond. But above all, God, we give you thanks again because you are good and your love endures forever. And we're so grateful for that. And we give you thanks. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.